0: Welcome right, everyone. Oh, I go? We're good. We're live. Yes. Welcome everyone to Connected Learning TV. This is the first webinar in our July series titled "Building Trust in Connected Learning Environments." I'm Cheryl Grant. I'm director of social networking for the Haystack MacArthur Foundation Digital Media and Learning um, Competition. And I'll be the host for today. For the next few weeks, you can join us here on Connected Learning TV as we explore some of the issues and recommendations from the recent Aspen Task Force on Learning in the Internet Report, Learner at the Center of a Networked World. Um, And we're running this month-long series on trust in connected learning environments as part of the haystack MacArthur Trust Challenge competition about building trust in um, connected learning environments which is a call to action and response to findings and recommendations that came out of the ATF report. We'll be talking about that a little bit today. Um, We hope that you'll be thinking about challenges to trust that um, you can identify in real life context and that you'll consider proposals or solutions that you can submit to the Trust Challenge. Um, And so for more information, take a look at the CFP at dmlcompetition.net. And now you'll have the summer to talk to colleagues and and institutions and create what we're calling laboratories Um, and the actual application window opens September 3rd and closes November 3rd. So take a look at that and then uh, for today we'll be chatting specifically about why trust matters in connected learning environments but before we dive into our chat let's go over a couple quick details about participating. If you're watching live right now we welcome your comments and questions either um, on Twitter on the hashtag DMLTrust or Connected Learning or through Google Plus event page on Connected Learning. We'll do our best to address your questions here in the Google Hangout. Um, We love live questions so so please uh, soldier up and and ask your questions. We're also chatting through the month in the um, Connected Learning Google Plus community and using the name or the same hashtag DMLTrust on Google+. I would like to give our guests a chance to briefly introduce themselves. So um, Kathy, why don't you begin?
1: Great, thank you, Cheryl. Uh, my name is Kathy Casserly. I am a fellow with the Aspen Institute and specifically my work with um, the fellow Uh, during this tenure we will be actually following up on the reports of the task force recommendation. I was a member of the Aspen Institute task force so I was part of the membership that sat around the table for over a year really identifying the challenges with the connected learning world today and how we can best uh, move the agenda ahead.
0: Great. David, would you like to let everybody know who you are?
2: Sure. My name is David Preston. I teach high school in California. I'm being joined part-time right now by my daughter Tara, and for the last three years I've been piloting something that we've been calling open source learning. And in a way that has more to do with thermodynamics than software because what we're really talking about is exchanging elements of our community with the surrounding environment and using the public internet as a way to directly connect students with resources, mentors, and experiences that can help them join the culture successfully that they're expected to work within once they graduate.
3: Gabby, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? All right. Um, I'm an advocate of open source, source learning. I just graduated from Dr. Preston's class, and um, I went through the whole process and created a blog. And um, it really, I, I really learned like how it works through him, and yeah, learned some cool stuff through it. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Gabby. Nick, do you want to introduce yourself?
4: Yes. Uh, my name is Nick Koyama. I'm 19 years old. And uh, I was in Preston's class when I was a freshman, which was still at the. Uh, he hadn't fully implemented open source learning into everyday curriculum. So as I graduated his class and did sophomore, junior, and senior year, I got to watch it develop. Uh, just after my freshman year, I um, created, I founded my own business. Uh, my own video production business, and I got to, through Preston, you know, spend a lot of time in his class and take things from him and implement it into my business. So now I could tell a little bit about what I've done, and it directly um, correlate with what he does and what he teaches. So I've I've got to utilize his uh, his program, even though I'm not in his class, which is really cool. Great. And I've we been also- able to help his kids, which is awesome, and they've been able to help me, and it's it's. Too, too, too
0: cool. Great. Well, we're so glad to have everybody here join us today. We were expecting also to have Doug Belshaw. He might show up. Um, hopefully, he's not having internet issues. And Doug is the project lead for the Web Literacy Standards at the Mozilla Foundation. So, um, if suddenly a new head shows up in the Google Hangout, you know that's uh, that's it was expected, and we <laughs> we were hoping he would join us. Um, so let's dive into the questions, and, um, and if we get any live questions from people who are following along, we'll, we'll swing over to that. Um, so just to frame this conversation, a lot of the public discourse about youth online emphasizes the dangers of the Internet, which we recognize, but there's not nearly as much attention on the positive potential of the technology as a tool for learning. So we have a trust problem. Um, And while we're talking about trust and all that it means, and we're going to have a very strong representation from the classroom perspective, um, we are are essentially talking about trustworthy learning environments and everything that includes online, in school, at the library, in databases, so basically connected learning environments. And this involves parents, educators, learners in multiple locations offline, uh, online, and it also involves policies, laws, codes, code in terms of programming, um, and business models. So just to set the stage that we are talking about the, the big, the big version of, of trusted learning networks as well as drilling right down into to student learning experiences. So with that, my first question is, um, and we'll, let's go from, from uh, uh, left to right with, with this first question and then we'll, we'll mix it up a little bit. My first question is: How do you define trustworthy learning environments, and what does it mean to create a trusted environment that would allow young people to pursue their interests in ways that optimize their safety and privacy?
1: Kathy, if you'd like to start. Great. Well, a big question uh, to begin, <laughs> and I think a big challenge in the environment that we're in now. So, um, I, ju- I think one of the things to do is just to step back and really understand, you know, the schools and the way the schools are structured now are really built on a model that, that was appropriate for the time, which was more of the industrial model. When we didn't have the digital age, we didn't have information that could really flow Throughout the world, like it can now, and we and we couldn't. And the mechanism for engaging students in learning was really through the vehicle of the classroom itself. And I think what we see now in the learning environment of schools is that the model has changed. It's broken down, and kids live in a very different world outside of school than they do inside. So I think we're already beginning to see the kind of the chasm that exists uh, for students in learning. And so as the world has changed, one of the great um, kind of features of our educational system is it's a democratic system and democratic systems are really strong and they're really stable and stable systems are really difficult also to change so that's the upside and that's the downside that exists and so the laws that exist to protect our students which everyone cares about are based on the world's of 20 30 40 50 years ago and haven't kept up with the technological change. So right away we have a we have a we have an issue with what does it mean for students to be connected and how do we connect them with the larger world when we can now open the doors and essentially allow anyone in is kind of the the scary version of it. And I think what happens and I think this happens really in a lot of situations is you know there is a risk and you do have to be smart and we do have to teach students and adults to be smart on the internet uh, adults can get scammed on the internet etc and so what we have to do is figure out how to create this environment where students can really learn and collaborate and share i think some of the things that the students were already beginning to talk about in their introductions because it opens up a whole new world for learning in a way that we're just not taking advantage of right in that right away and so just you know just kind of a, a few kind of comments about that is that is that there needs to be some policy changes because there are policy restrictions that are happening now uh, that hinder the ability of students to uh, be able to join in collaborative environments and we have to protect students as they join in these collaborative environments and we have to figure out how to do this in the new world. And I think um, one of the definitions of this is really how to open the doors to students while at the same time protecting and making sure students feel secure and safe. And it's very much an analog to the world of offline. You know, there is bullying that happens that's offline as well as online. And so there's new social norms that we have to make sure we continue to push for and we continue to encourage as part of this new ecosystem as a new trusted environment gets developed. So that's kind kind of some of the the kind of a broad broad response to the question, but I think it's important to really set it in context.
0: That was excellent. Thank you. Um, David, do you want to tackle that very easy question?
2: <laughs> the very easy question. I was glad that you picked on Kathy first. <laughs> I'm actually going to make the question a little bit more difficult before I attempt to try and answer it. Um, I think that when we talk about things like the Internet, that's fine before we talk about things like the Internet we have to decide what it is that we're talking about and most of us in the public sphere don't really have a deep understanding of what the Internet really is it gets described in terms of pipes or real estate or other metaphors that make it an accessible concept but I think for most of the public the Internet is still seen as a toy or a tool or an add-on to something as opposed to really a set of decisions about how we choose to communicate and while a parent may still look at the internet as something to take away when their young person is doing something undesirable we're looking at you know uh, some of the richest real estate is a block closer to the New York Stock Exchange because it gives an advantage on transactions that is worth billions of dollars every year and in that environment we have such a massive disconnect uh, between say for example the public's understanding of net neutrality or the public's understanding of how we can establish communities of critique and interest and economic value through relationships um, that I think we're really sort of a long way away from establishing a baseline of what we mean when we say digital literacy. Um, When I came to teach high school, I had been at UCLA for 10-11 years and I had run a management consulting practice, so many of my clients and students, the best of the best, the brightest of the brightest, we're complaining about school in a very different way and the isolation that people experience in schools and the disconnect from the culture they're expected to join when they leave school means that instead of adapting school which is a very robust institution and very good at what it does and as Kathy said it was built for its time it's nobody's fault but it's everybody's responsibility we need to find ways to enable school and the people within it to adapt to the changes in our culture and technology instead of trying to um, shape our culture and technology into an acceptable form that goes along with school policy. So for me a trusted environment um, is one in which you say to people I'm going to believe in you. Emerson, you know I teach American literature next semester, Emerson said if you trust men to be great they will prove themselves great. Uh, It's the ultimate faith-based initiative because the fear factor is geez, if I let people do what they think is a good idea, it might not be my version of a good idea. And this is all before we get to the policy and laws. Socrates got in big trouble because he went around asking people questions that he didn't know the answer to. And when you do this inductively and you do trust students, the big fear is that they'll do the wrong thing. What I've found in my communities and my classrooms is that over millions of artifacts produced, say, in the last three to four years, nothing, nothing has gone wrong. And a big part of that, I think, is that students are rightly concerned about what happens to them next after they graduate. Unlike when I went to school, they can see the whole world and the public discourse about their schooling right there on their smartphones. And they understand that they don't necessarily have the level of confidence that we did. When I went to school, it was a very directed experience. I believed in my teachers. If I didn't, my parents helped me right away, rebelieve in my teachers, and that <laughs> net was, was very specific. Uh, now I think there's, there's a lot of concern about it's not just Johnny, pay attention because that builds character, even if you don't like your teacher. The next generation isn't going to have it as good as their parents. So the good news is that in this bouillabaisse base of culture, we've got a massive opportunity. Students, in my experience, are far more willing to engage when they can believe that there's integrity at the other end of the conversation. The biggest challenge I have is trust. Not me trusting the students but getting them to trust me because they've all heard a wonderful story on the first day of class but usually the other shoe drops and it's another flavor of the same old ice cream. So I think the simple answer to your question is a trusted learning environment is an environment in which people can create the space to take the risk and actually trust each other. The harder question is, how do you create a trusted learning environment in a culture that tends to lean toward command and control, whether we're talking about levels of bureaucracy and legal policy or even how we do things like manage traffic?
0: Great, I saw uh, both Gabby and Nick, I saw you both nodding your head when um, when Mr. can I say, should I say Mr. Preston or David Preston? (laughs) say, David, Dr. <laughs> um, or Dr. Preston, sorry. Um, uh, your teacher <laughs> was saying that um, trust is having integrity, and you both nodded your head. Do you want to talk a little bit about what how you define a uh, trustworthy learning environment?
4: Um, would you like to go first? Or you to go first? Uh, whatever, we
3: can go. Um,
4: a, a trusted learning environment doesn't necessarily mean Sometimes a trusted learning environment is a good place to compete, and, and it, you know, by, by competing within a system, you trust the system. And something that Dr. Preston has been doing is uh, his masterpiece projects, and there's so much trust within, within his little community that he built that kids aren't even, they're fully focused on themselves and they're doing it in, in a way that, that they're really pushing themselves. So when you're building an environment, a trusting environment, you're you're kind of setting up a place for kids to compete with everything that they've been taught thus far. And um, I, trust is a big thing, but, but trust can only be kept there if, if you're constantly being challenged. If, if you're sat in a room for 60 minutes a day and, you know, and it's the same old thing and you're not too sure where this is going, you're not going to trust your teacher or the education that you're getting, but if you're constantly being challenged and you don't know what's around the next corner, well, in order to take that step, you need trust. So to create a trust environment, you also, you have to make trust a necessity and not a choice. And um, challenging your students to the maximum with all the tools in, in the earth, you know, is, trust is a necessity to that. And that's what um, this kind of learning will, will push out of people. So trust, trust is, Trust is the, the question, but really the question is how to, how to challenge every single student simultaneously while allowing them to collaborate uh, using all the tools. So,
3: um, the, What I feel uh, just getting out of that system is a lot of people my age now don't even, we don't trust it, and we're looking for an out, we're looking for another way that we can learn things that we actually want to learn about, things that actually apply to what we want to do and where we want to go, which is why doing the Masterpiece with Dr. Preston really um, you know, opened up a lot of people's eyes and like, whoa, this can actually be different. Um, and that, that itself takes a lot of trust just to be able to open your mind up to another way of learning. Um, uh, kids are so ready to... Um, put down the system that we have now but not so willing to just open up to a new way yet and so I think it's a question is how can you make it so that it's a lot easier for kids to understand how and why um, this a new way of learning or um, trusting the internet can work out for them and It'll, it's a lot easier now because um, implementing using technology in class and stuff that kids can connect to can really help um, you know their the way they look at things so
4: and if I may add on that um, I think there will be somewhat of a social blowback when we start implementing things like this and it's it's more because we've raised as as a generation the cliche idea that we don't Um, we don't like the system when we're learning it, when in fact we're becoming a generation that doesn't like learning in general. We don't like storing information. We don't like having to pull facts out of our head. And so that raises the question of what, at the end of the day, should be in our head stored? Should it be facts? Or should we have accomplished something and then draw our own conclusions and hold on to those? And that kind of brings up the idea of, you know, what, what can be you know, graded and what what is education about is it for to help us get to the next level and to to make us multifaceted in the society we've built or is it to be able to you know set a bar and equally test us all the same now you know it's going to be hard to test effort um, well it the, the thing about this is there will be leaders in the classroom that aren't the teachers it'll be the students the ones who who um, challenging themselves, and it's going to create a social competition, and that's why I say there's going to be blowback because at first kids won't understand uh, how it works, but when their student, you know, wants, uh, you know, becomes make something of himself through school, which is totally, you know, rare, you know, there's it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna create social competition, and nothing will make a kid learn faster than their fellow teammate or student trying to teach them. <laughs> you know, nothing's more. All right, all right. What is it? What is it? You know. So um,
0: so I, what I find really interesting about this, and Kathy, I would love to hear from you on your perspective because the Aspen Task Board has such a meta view of, of what you're talking about, Nick and Gabby and, and David. When you hear this, how, Kathy, how do you think about um, trust and, and why it's so important in connected learning environments? And when I say um, connected learning environments, I'm thinking about the parents, the educators, the teachers, and the learners. So... That's interesting what Nick just said about the blowback because that also raises Mm -hmm. questions about like how how parents are going to respond to this. Mm -hmm. But maybe you could just talk about what you think, why it's so important in in terms of all the the stakeholders, all the people including the learners.
1: Yeah, you know, I think think it's been touched on but I think the point that resonates with me is really that uh, trust is a precondition for the learning environment we want to create for the future and so if the trust is there it's going to be hanging in the background and we won't even know it'll become part of the context but we have to build we have to make sure that that trust gets built and there are certain pipes in some ways and infrastructure that will help build that we think Um, but to the points I think particularly that um, were raised, that Nick raised about student blowback I think this is a, a seismic change for the system this is a change for parents. This is a change for teachers. This is a change for students. And I think um, in, in kind of going to the end vision, the end vision is that every student in that classroom does not have a ceiling. Every student goes and connects in a way that that is uh, resonates with them. And clearly, there will have to be some sort of mechanism of in school and out of school, and how do we certify the, the learning or the competencies that happen, and is it through Digital portfolios and do students carry digital backpacks? These are all the things that were discussed as part of the task force. So, the, so the question is how to create this new world of learning, which will allow, which will allow the student leaders to emerge, which will allow the teachers to still be the professionals that are needed. Uh, that. Uh, Dr. Preston certainly seems to be with his um, classroom, but how he guides the students as opposed to filling the vessel of the knowledge, right? So that's the old school model that you have to carry this knowledge with you. And in this new world we also know that the the learnings uh, that we need and the competencies are about being able to assimilate information about working in teams about leadership and there will be a leader who will emerge in that classroom but there's gonna be other leaders you would never even imagine that could emerge from that classroom because they carry a skill set that the current structure of the classroom classroom doesn't allow them to bloom. And so what we want is equity, is we want students, all students to feel this empowerment in their learning environment because it's about engaging them in their own learning journey. Um, and it's really thinking about how this precondition of trust has to exist for everything else to emerge beyond it. And And, and the great challenge to this is it's, an unknown. We haven't done it before. We don't know exactly and precisely how to um, unfold it. We have pockets of um, what I call gems, which it sounds like these students have been have the opportunity to participate in. But we have to build more gems and we have to build the skills and expertise and the knowledge of the system to trust in this innovation that needs to happen.
0: And David, maybe you could talk. I, I know you have some experience with, um, with uh, uh, learning without ceilings. You've got a, a blog post up about it and, and, and maybe we could tie this in also with a question from Twitter if you could describe a little bit about what the Masterpiece um, projects were about.
2: The Masterpiece projects you know so in a true what I'm coming to formulate as open source learning environment really depends on our innate passion and curiosity. I honestly believe that every single one of us is a born learner. It's how we survive whether you look at 30,000 years of evolutionary orienting response to our environment or the things that we become curious about as youngsters. I have a daughter who's five. I watch it every single day and over time systemically formal institutions of education not only don't help that, they tend to quell it because there's such a desire to avoid punishment and seek institutional reward that the personal sense of curiosity and passion dies along the way for all but the most resilient students. And so, what happens is, I was very surprised when I started doing this that when I asked the students on the very first day, rather than giving them another syllabus with my next best idea of here's the new and improved, but still you don't have any say in it, do you want to do this? Here is a set of options that we might be able to explore, but, and then I would go into, I put my consultant hat on and talk about how difficult consensus is to achieve, (laughs) uh, and then I would leave the room. And if students understood the prisoner's development or prisoner develop, prisoner's dilemma, and if they really didn't want to do anything else, they literally could sit in that room and leave me outside for the semester, complete the one task I'd ask, and get their A and go home. The average time to decide to do something more dynamic is about two and a half minutes. And more often than not, I don't get out the door. And I ask them to ratify their responses in a blog post so that the public doesn't have to take my word for it and my site administration and school district administration. Um, But to come a long way back around, the Masterpiece Projects start in that moment, during the first day when I introduced this opportunity. For those students who get it, they hit the ground running, they ask a big question, and they start to use the curriculum in a way that supports their goals and their interests, because the reality is Gabby, for example, was in an expository composition class last year. Well, expository composition is simply reading and writing about nonfiction and demonstrating some skills along the way. The content can easily be mapped back to whatever she really cares about. So she chose a masterpiece project that had to do with altruism and empathy and compassion. Over the course of the year, some students make this course all about their own goals and pursuits. Other students need to get a little bit more structure along the way because it's a really big leap. If you've mastered the art of following directions, it can be a real challenge to be told to chart your own course all of a sudden. And I had to develop a lot of patience and empathy myself because I was frustrated in the beginning. When I gave students the opportunity to do what they wanted and they sat there staring at me, you go through all of the normal, you know, is this a motivational question? Is it a rebellious question? No. Um, I came to conclude that we're raising veal for the rodeo. They're inquisitive muscles had so atrophied, they had been so used to being told no, that they were just waiting to be told what to do next so that they wouldn't get in trouble. Now, when Kathy, I smiled and I put up that post because when Kathy mentioned learning without ceilings, I happened to entitle a blog post about that because one of our students uh, came to me and said, you know, Dr. Preston, I've always been passionate about Yosemite and sustainable architecture and nature. Could I get a school trip together to go to Yosemite? And I said, sure. Uh, I don't want to do all the paperwork associated with school trips, though. Nobody's got time for that, and we don't want the liability, and there's, you know, we're at the end of the year anyway. Um, but if we can find a way to get this together, I'm open. Let's see what we can come up with. And this student proceeded to engage her father and a few local community business partners to put up the money to contract with uh, the oldest nature education uh, organization in Yosemite, Nature Bridge. And the student led the entire process from contracting with Nature Bridge to getting all of us out there and when students do this on their own everything from the choices they make about platforms and research and curation now here we live in the information age it seems to me that a reasonable baseline for our education system should be can a student find analyze evaluate and act on the best information that humanity has to offer whether they have permission or not can they find out those resources um, so my short and long, My Gabby and Nick will tell you I go on at length even if a tiny question comes my way. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of the nature of the beast. But I think that for me, I'm doing this in a hybrid gorilla environment. I don't even have a classroom computer. I take two laptops with me home and and back every single day because the school's limited in what it can provide. Um, if I were be, to be able to be supported in this and to have the resources and I'm not pointing a finger but I'm just acknowledging limitations because there are a lot of people like me who are less loudmouthed about it and not only suffer quietly but do so in specific because to be articulate and out loud about it is to put themselves at risk. So if I had my druthers, we would be able from day one to say Cheryl, Kathy, what are you really passionate about? What's your big question? And I'll put up a post that invites students to comment on that. And from there, how do we meaningfully integrate an interdisciplinary path of inquiry? That takes you through age and stage appropriate levels of everything from mathematics to science to literature. Because as soon as you say, Well, why doesn't my boyfriend love me anymore? you've got probability, biology, poetry. We can link that to everything. Show me a cup of tea and you've got ceramics, botany, and the history of colonialism. So I think that plus you. I think that for me the real opportunity in the masterpiece is the learner reconceiving of their education as their personal masterpiece so that they can build themselves through school and use school and everything it offers as a tool rather than be a passive consumer that then gets pushed out into the wild and contributes to a twelve billion dollar self help industry and a trillion dollar plus college debt seal. Mm-hmm.
4: So
0: so Gabby and Nick in in trying to move this question along just a little bit in terms of the challenges, because I, I have to admit, I'm, half of my brain is listening as a parent.
2: Yeah.
0: And I would love to, for my child to have a learning experience like this, but I'm also aware that I have a lot of parents that I would consider good parents um, who would be listening thinking, are you posting things online with your real identity? And what, like, yeah. what kinds of choices are they getting? And, and when you talked earlier, and I love this phrase, um, deep understanding is about what a, that you're developing a deep understanding about what the internet is
3: yep.
0: N- Nick and Gabby if you could comment on how this experience with this kind of learning approach helped you think about those other layers of trust that start getting into this wide open sort of fire hose of information that, that Kathy was referring to earlier what kind of challenges did you think about as you were going through this process?
4: Yeah well um as we started, as I started implementing, um, like this real collaborative slash, you know, internet mindset, I started realizing that, um, you know, the the internet, and and life in general, is kind of harsh, and and the way the school system's set up right now is it's really enclosed, and the the big question is is when it's time to break that wall, of uh, education in reality, because you start realizing that yeah the internet has a lot of cyberbullying but most problems real problems that affect us are domestic not only between us as students but us and ourselves so once we once we really go face to face with reality of what are, what are we trying to do from K through 12 then i think we'll we'll realize that that the barrier between students and the world shouldn't even be there the problems that we receive through the internet are nothing compared to the problems we have with each other in class mm-hmm. and um, so I, I just think that um, that that we, like inside the classroom we need to cut the um, you know cut, <laughs> we, we need to cut it out and realize that the, the internet is something that we we're all like fixated our mindsets to and everything we see was brought to us somehow through some kind of digital thing. And and the fact that we're ignoring that in everyday life in an education system, that's that's sabotaging us because we're not going to be ready. Like Preston said, we're, we're training for something to a war that, that doesn't exist anymore. And um, I think a lot of that has to do with uh, um, we, we don't revere education too much. You know, colleges used to be so renowned because that's where the libraries used to be. Well now we have every every piece of knowledge at a click of a button, yet we don't access it. So I think to create an environment where we where we feed on accessing the unlimited is is what we need to do to gain trust. And um, like I said, we just need to keep the kids challenged. Because if they're not challenged, then they won't trust anything. And we're not challenged now and we don't trust anything now. I don't Yeah, like I, I didn't I got pretty moderate grades through school. But through using an open-source kind of mindset and building a company, and getting everyone in my school involved, and you know, taking everyone's talents and putting it together and actually creating something, I was able to to form an education and a portfolio that'll get me anywhere. And I um, I got most likely to succeed at my school. And it's just like there's things that are that are proving to be um, extremely truthful and extremely real when it comes to dropping you know, stepping into a world, stepping into reality behind in the classroom. You know, it, it's it's seen by the outside as slightly dangerous, but if you knew what was going on inside the classroom and inside our heads as kids, that's a walk in the park.
2: And I'd like to piggyback on that a little bit because when Nick and I met, Nick had come out of another English class with another teacher and had had a very different set of experiences. And when, and, and I'm putting it diplomatically. And when we met, Uh, Nick was expecting more of the same, and was really sort of counting the days. And Nick is a videographer and an independent filmmaker, and when he said, well, can I do this in video? I said, sure, why not? And for a moment, you know, as articulate as he is, he was visibly stunned. I mean, there was a moment where we kind of stared at each other, and I shrugged and said, well. And then things started to progress from there. but I think we make a mistake when we just assume that learning is a function of an individual. Uh, Learning is a function of the spaces in which we find ourselves as well and you read all of the research in education and elsewhere about how connectivity accelerates and amplifies our efforts Nick was able to see himself in a different way because he started to have the courage to be more of himself out loud in that environment. I think for most people when they go to school they check a big part of their personality at the door They bring the part of them that they think is school appropriate, and they leave everything else at the school gate or further at home. And I see in the chat there's a question about tracing my beginning of open source learning. Um, This goes with a lot, you know, when we talk about trust, we're really talking about courage, and we're talking about uh, fear of the unknown and and the things that make us want to withhold and and be less than ourselves. Um, For many teachers and many students, the idea of being available on the public internet for critique, for sometimes attack, is a very daunting prospect. And I don't take it lightly. Uh, there are a couple of trolls who follow me around as well. And if I didn't have support from some very key people in my organization, what I do wouldn't be possible. Um, if I didn't have support from students, what I do wouldn't be possible. And that's why I think the Connected Learning Alliance's role is so important, because as Kathy said earlier, we you have you know these gems but then the question and this is a you know the insidious part of the entrepreneurial Silicon Valley culture is so how are you going to scale this well so now every teacher has to be an entrepreneur and a marketer and then you get into questions of well are you you know somebody even told me recently uh, you're profiteering on students and I'm thinking sure if you think that I'm making money and ego points from teaching high school you obviously understand the proposition but I think that we have these opportunities to be more of ourselves in public and share, and I love losing arguments. My students will tell you I actively look for an excuse once in a while because we don't have any models in our culture. When was the last time you watched cable television and saw somebody say, you know, wait a minute, Uh, geez, you actually have a better idea than I do. Thank you for helping me understand this differently. (laughs) Um, I think that for a lot of us, I really want to see us move toward a Wikipedia way of doing public education and away from an Encarta way of doing education. And I think that for me what that looks like is if we all shared platforms in common or at least media in common that were translatable. You know, I know Kathy was the, the former CEO of Creative Commons, right?
1: That's right. And
2: so whenever I put a work up online, I could attempt to protect it. I could attempt to charge for it. Uh, I've been solicited to do those things in the past. And my attitude is No, I want to show you with a license that you're able to take it and do whatever you want with it because this is an act of generosity. When we learn together, when Nick and Gabby curate their blogs, yes, they're creating individual value for themselves because when I look them up, whatever other party pictures they collect at college, I know that I'm going to see a record of a learning life. But at the very same time, they're creating a curriculum. They're creating a path forward for other people who may not have access to a teacher or an adult who's in that position but by looking online they can see how somebody tackled that or somebody pursued it and even if it's not their content or their process they'll be inspired to find something that's just as suitable for them and so I think if we are more comfortable being ourselves and taking these kinds of risks I may get slammed once in a while that's worth it to me if in the meantime learners like Nick and Gabby and their colleagues and maybe some of the people who see us online but don't have the ability to be in our classroom with us, get the benefits that help them succeed in a world that's increasingly complex. The other part of this is that the previous curriculum, when I say interdisciplinary, I'm not a content expert across the board, but I am a connector for those areas that I don't know so well. And when we talk about the traditional siloed curriculum, school is the only place where life works that way. Mm -hmm. And because we don't know what the next industries are going to be and we don't know where the next jobs are going to be, I think it's important for all of us adults to acknowledge we're helping guide and prepare you to solve problems and think critically and creatively. You know, I love the language around the common core. I don't know that testing is the way to get us there and then you, you just tip a toe in that argument and then you're in the reform union thing and that's not what I'm talking about. I love tests. If I get on a plane or if I go in for surgery, I want to know that person's passed the test. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the kinds of skills that our students now need to build for an uncertain future demand that we be ourselves online and take these kinds of intellectual risks so that we can start exchanging ideas with our environment, especially when it turns out that our own ideas or preconceived notions are weaker. Because that to me is what learning is all about.
0: I, and I'd like to build on that because you have mentioned risk a couple times, and you you wrote something earlier. Um, that, and I'd like to point this to Kathy to answer. Um, earlier, David was talking about six levels of bureaucracy: the site administration, district administration, school district board, county board, state board, and then the Department of Ed. So this is obviously not an ideal environment for risk. And and Nick has talked about it. Gabby's referred to it. I mean, we understand that schools are these are very difficult, siloed places and yet it is possible. So Kathy maybe you could talk about when you think about this and and obviously this is one of the findings and recommendations is innovation and creativity and that's what our our trust challenge is about. What what is it going to take? Make us feel good about the risks is what I want you to (laughs) to do.
1: Well, I I think what we know and what we see is that there are teachers who are able to create the environment. They're in a context and an environment in that school through all those layers that allows them to have enough room to take some risks and to challenge the typical curriculum and way of teaching. And They cannot typically do that alone. Uh, because they are in a system so they either have a headmaster or a principal or other teachers who are supporting who are giving them the space for innovation and that that does exist and that's where teachers have to step up and kind of take advantage of that and actually see what the boundary is and I think the more that teachers do this like Dr. Preston the more we learn and the more we share these stories and the more we share the curriculum then we're able to actually adapt this. So part of the the risk is um, so, so so I would flip it right. So I would say the greatest risk we have is to do nothing. The greatest risk we have is to maintain the current structures and procedures and way of teaching and learning that have been around for 400 years because the world and the context have changed and the greatest risk for us is to do nothing is to be so afraid to try and maybe fail a little bit and not fail hard or fast we don't want to lose any kids we don't want to lose a generation we certainly won't but we're doing that now I mean we are losing so many kids who at all ends of the economic spectrum in schools inner-city rural schools uh, suburban communities who are not engaged in their learning so the biggest risk we have is to do what we're doing right now and to expect different outcomes, right? We cannot expect different outcomes with what we're doing today. And so for me, the greatest risk is to do what we're, to, to keep the status quo. The biggest risk is to say the system can't change. The biggest risk is to say because I learned in a system that worked 40 years ago, my student, my child should learn in that system well, is to not open up to this new world that exists. And I think, you know, in David's reference to um, open source learning, I call it open educational resources. The, the Wikipedia model is like the fifth largest website in the world and most used is because there's a new way of learning. There's a reason why Encyclopedia Britannica no longer exists. It's because the world has changed. And so as we think about these risks, I think we think they're bigger than they really are. And I also think it takes courage to step into a new environment and to change what you've done as your current norm. So there is a bit of the the headset that I think Nick talks about, you know, the biggest risk is talking to ourselves and how we limit ourselves. Um, And really having an environment where you feel comfortable, whether you're a teacher with your co-teachers, whether you're a district uh, administrator who's going to allow and create that room for innovation. Um, whether you're a principal or a headmaster, whether you're um, some of the folks on the Hill that we'll be talking to about the report and say you've got to help create the room for these new models and policies to emerge and I think all of us I think it goes back to the individual we all have to step into this and say what do we need are we comfortable with the outcomes we're seeing now or is there a much better way for us to think about this moving
2: forward. And Cheryl I think that you know Kathy brings up a a really important point Um, there the only reason that I dub this something different. You know, there's so many it's almost like word salad. You think blended learning, m-learning, e-learning, pedagogy, okay. there's lots of different and and it winds up being very confusing because we're talking about an abstract sphere. We don't really know how learning actually works, and certainly not for every one of us all the time in every subject. So the only reason that I think of this as open source learning as opposed to open education resources is because I mean not just the curriculum and the instruction, but the actual structure of the operating community in which those things happen, and in which those things are used, is fungible. If I have a student comes to me and says, I want to fly a plane, as one did, and he knows a pilot, great. I'm going for the ride-along to document the process and learn along the way, but that's not my classroom. It's not anything I know about, and I want to create a space, and this is, Kathy, I'm, I'm so supportive of what you're doing, and I hope it's successful if we can create more space for those understandings to not be a false dichotomy between flexibility and rigor for example. Mm -hmm. Most of the students in my courses will tell you, and I've done surveys at the year-end and I have data on this, this course is more rigorous than the other courses that they take. The difference is it's not a pain point because they're doing things that they don't understand and don't see the value in and therefore don't like. The rigor for them is in pursuing things that are so difficult but that they care about so much that they're willing to do it over and over and fail so that they improve and that's the stuff of lifelong learning I really think that if we're just going to do a top-down and this is why you know I intentionally use the language of thermodynamics an open source system is a system that trades components with its environment if we move away from the learner as passive consumer and we require them as Nick said to have a sense of agency and to step up yes it's very difficult but better we should do that as a young age so that we avoid this ongoing generational condition of phew, I'm done with school, I don't have to learn anymore. And every campus has... Sorry, go ahead.
0: I I was just going to ask you a little bit about that because what I hear coming through when you talk about open source learning is this idea of choice and handing over control and of course that that requires a lot of trust from many people in a learning network to allow that to happen. And and I think I mean I feel a lot of people would be completely behind you, but there's so many questions about what where are the boundaries to the choice? and earlier you wrote about um, giving learners the choice of the social media, the collaborative curation platforms so they can tell their story and then they can make decisions that demonstrates their creative. I mean, Gabby and Nick are perfect examples of, of that. So how are you implementing that and then how are you helping like those are ripples of trust that are going to go out, so how do you manage that process with all those different people that get touched by that that handing over of choice and
4: control? If I may say something um, I would like to challenge the idea that teachers are hardly in control now of our education. Um, really, <laughs> no, but, but As far as an outside look in you know physically and and traditionally, they are in control, you know? They're all in their seats, and they're all quiet and everything. But as far—if we're talking here about learning and educating kids on how to be successful, no. There's, there's, they, it's not that they're not in control. It's just that the systems aren't, aren't there. So, Although
0: I'm going pu- to push back on that just a little bit, Nick, because one of the things I was reading through some of the blog posts, you could see that even students had to go through a transformation between feeling skepticism— about yeah. what was presented to them at the beginning and they themselves have to go through and recognize oh when I'm given control and when I am and I take this these choices seriously that that is actually a process that you had to go through and so I think what I'm trying to say is not necessarily whether uh, teachers are in control but that we all have to go through this process where we
3: understand
0: this is this is going to be okay. Yeah. Well
3: and with the system um, kids are either going to realize it now oh, I need to step up and actually put myself on the line here for myself now, or they're going to realize it when they're 30 and don't have a job.
4: <laughs> yeah, and the, and the thing about having this limitless, no-roof system is that you rather learn and make something great of yourself in the classroom, and, you know, because Preston is pretty much asking you the question, what can you do? What is your potential? So you rather find your potential... You'd rather come up short, but whatever happens, you live life, keep asking yourself that question. So whether if you become successful later, you land up in jail, you're always in a position to go back to the students and explain its importance. And that's how this is going to work. Is it's not just students and then you graduate. Okay, here's the next students, teach each other, go on the internet. It's look at these kids, what they have to say, how much... Like I, I go into Preston's class now and, and teach about what I'm doing. and. And the effect, the impact that I have on these kids is ridiculous. It's nothing I've, I've, I've ever been able to reach. And um, just being able to, to question myself and what I can do was so key to my success this far. Um, we
0: just got a great question, and we only have five minutes left, and I want to make sure everybody has a chance to respond. Um, and thank you, Nick, because that was, that was perfect back and forth. Um, but I do want to get this question out here because I think it's an excellent one. And it, it, it's asking the question, is it fear of risk or is it a lack of models to manage variables and induce familiarity, transparency, and trust? I just think that's a perfect question. And um, I'm just going to open it to anybody that feels like that resonates and they have something they'd like to say about it. I
1: think uh, look, 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 can I just jump on for one second? I think that question is really well worded. And I do think that this new issue of trust and the trusted environment requires transparency, it requires openness, it requires us to step forward in a way we haven't historically and those variables are really important and and at the same time they're new models and so we have to teach ourselves what it means now to be transparent as a teacher in the classroom in the world and sharing our um, drafts of comments or uh, um, you know documents that aren't quite polished sometimes, right? And and, and at the same time it's a fear of, a fear of the unknown because we haven't done that before. So we have to bridge this world and we have to s- show successful supportive models. And we also have to show models where people tried and it didn't quite work out but they learned and then they tried again because that iteration is really going to be the, the model of innovation here that moves forward.
2: Agreed and I'd also like to suggest that you know in this environment Look, I was one of those people when the Lakers first hired Phil Jackson. You know, the guy's making $6 million a year. He calls two timeouts a season, and then when he calls a timeout, he walks away. And you think, what's this guy doing? How is he teaching? How is he responsible for executing the terms of his contract, even? Then you come to realize that he's creating space where learners and colleagues can be their best selves, and if they're not going to be them best, their best selves, that that process will also be transparent, analyzable, evaluatable, and actionable. And in this environment, you know, if you look at the member blogs for each of our learning communities over the last three years, you will see some that are not populated. You will see some that are populated poorly. You'll see some where students have stumbled. You'll see some where I have stumbled. That's the human condition and that's what we need to stop being afraid of. In this environment, I would much rather have a conversation with a young person in which they tell me, because I don't penalize people for not using technology. Some people can't get to devices, there's economic issues, there's access issues, Um, and sometimes within a community, if there's a large enough uh, problem with connectivity, then that gives us the juice to be able to go to a provider and say, we need to get our community connected. But even for the individual student, um, if someone publishes something that is off the reservation, or if they stop publishing, I contend that we are much less likely to have a Columbine, a Virginia Tech, in an environment where everyone is being themselves out loud. You know, the First Amendment is not only there to ensure our freedoms of communication; it's there to let us know who among us needs help and needs education. So, to me, I think that as we move towards this transparency, we don't have to have the thing. This doesn't have to be a model in the sense that we're guaranteed a happy outcome. I think that it has to be a model where we begin where we started this conversation with a very simple value that says, I trust in the best of people to do the right thing more often than not and that we're all in this to learn. and From there, good things can happen.
0: Yeah. That is a great note to end on. I'm so sorry to have to do this. This is where I have to be the bad guy and say it's, it's three o'clock and we are out of time, but we're going to continue this conversation. Um, it would be great, Nick and Gabby, if you stay engaged in this conversation. It just, I, I know that a lot of people are probably very interested in your perspective, um, and you can do that. Um, this is our, our first webinar for this month-long series, um, but we're going to keep having conversations so we don't have to pause. Uh, or we do pause but we can continue it. Um, We're encouraging everyone to keep this energy going by using the Twitter hashtag DMLTrust by getting involved in the ongoing conversations within the Connected Learning Google Plus community. We're gonna have a full video recording of this webinar available immediately on Connected Learning TV. That's www.connectedlearning.tv with other curated content on the way um, that you can share with your network. And mark your calendars for Tuesday, July 15th at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern for the second webinar in the series when we talk about trust challenges. We got to a little bit of those today, but we're going to talk about those in a big way. Trust challenges across connected learning environments. Uh, Thank you um, to everybody. Uh, Also, we encourage you to check out the recent learner at the center of a network world report that Kathy was hugely a part of, uh, it's a a report by the Aspen Task Force, and you can find a link to that on the webinar archive page as well. So thank you to everybody. This has been a great conversation. I forgot that I was moderating. I was getting right in there, (laughs) responding, and had uh, a lot of light bulbs go off as everybody was talking. So thank you to everybody, and and we'll see you on the next webinar.
4: No problem. Thank you.
1: Thank you. you. Bye-bye.